the cycling podcast powered by super sapiens energy management for committed athletes and coaches Hello, my name is Richard Moore. I'm with Lionel Burney. Hello, Richard. And Daniel Freib. Hello, chaps. And it is nice to be with you again, having missed out last night. I, I missed the first Cycling Podcast live event in two years. A very intimate affair in London, a wine tasting evening. How are, I mean, how are you both feeling? I'm bright-eyed and bushy-tailed here. How are you two? Well, very much the same, Richard. Um, you say you missed it. Our original intention was for no one to miss it because we were going to... Well, we did record a podcast, which we intended well. to release. <laughs> um, but, um, well, I, I wouldn't say we got carried away last night. Um, but, you know, there was well, there was a lot of wine involved, as you'd expect, a wine tasting. Six glasses, three glasses of white, three glasses of red. Um, a bit of a viticultural sort of reenactment of the Grand Tours. And, um, yeah, we, um, we became slightly loose-tongued, didn't we, Lionel? <laughs> uh, to, to the extent where there will be high-level editorial discussions over the next few weeks about exactly what form this podcast from last night will take we may need to invest in another pair of scissors for our audio producers to snip out the uh, the unbroadcastable <laughs> bits now i'm even more sorry that i i wasn't there um uh, very sorry did i understand you did one of my favorite wines though last night daniel red oh. <laughs> um yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> your tasting notes uh, were missed I have to say. Yeah, no, I'll bet. I know it's Daniel wearing the, the old movie star design there on in your on your casket. They've 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 launched their new kit today. Very um very, very fetching it is too, isn't very it? Very fetching, very nice indeed, yeah. Um this is the latest in our Anus Galacticus series, um, which uh see it feels like it'll stretch on for as long as the However, the, I was going to say the Roman Empire, but I'm getting a bit, getting a bit mixed up here. I'll, I'll move on swiftly. Anyway, it's the latest in our Annus Galacticus series. Uh, it's a press conference. We're reprising something that we do at the Grand Tours. We've got lots of your questions to answer in this episode. Um, but before we get on to that, we've got a news roundup, a very brief news roundup. And we're going to hear in this news roundup uh, from somebody on one of the bits of news that has just broken today. So it's very timely. Lionel, take it away. Well, I was just going to say very briefly on last night's wine tasting, the, some cycling chat did break out, as you'd expect. Oh, wow. on, in a in a wine-themed event, we did actually talk about cycling, whereas in during the cycling episodes, we, we tend to talk quite a lot about wine. Uh, it was absolutely charming evening. My first visit to Divine Cellars, my first opportunity to meet Greg Andrews, who has curated the cases for the Grand Tours and done a very fine job. Really impressed by his shop, I have to say. And uh, to hear the plans for the Grand Tour cases for next season's Grand Tours, kicking off with the, the Giro d'Italia in May and hearing all sorts of rumours that he's going to go off and actually source some specific wine. Root recon. I mean, yeah. one of the conclusions that I drew from last night was that Greg Andrews is putting more work into the 22 
2022 Giro than Mauro Vigny, Simon <laughs> Yates, and possibly a few others. And, and us, <laughs> and us maybe yeah. even. He's, he's already booked his recon trip. But uh, as you say, Richard, we want to get to the press conference questions as quickly as possible. But just a handful of quite big stories, really. Let's start with the Cyclocross World Cup in the snow at Val di Sole in Italy, where Wout van Aert won the men's race. We actually had a question from the floor at last night's wine tasting about the possibility of cyclocross being included in the Winter Olympics. Is that, what this is, is that what's going to happen this episode? It's just going to be constant references to last <laughs> night's event that, that I and 99.95% of our audience weren't at. Um, no, this is the final reference to it. Uh, but yeah, there have been some discussions about cyclocross and the Winter Olympics. Of course, the Winter Olympics rule is that the sport has to take place on snow or ice and cyclocross can take place on snow and ice as the riders proved at the weekend. We did also joke that maybe it would be a, a, a way for Primoz Roglic to get himself a, an Olympic Winter Games medal. Um, I don't know, perhaps a big descent on the cyclocross course at the Winter Olympics. Who knows? Uh, Tade Pogacar, the Tour de France champion, winner of two of the one-day monuments this season, uh, Liège-Bastogne-Liège and Ile-Lombardia, will be riding the Tour of Flanders uh, in April. As Well, I, we were speculating, weren't we? Uh, would he be a rider capable of winning all five monuments over the course of his career? Well, we'll see how he gets on on the cobbles and bergs of Flanders in April. And two big pieces of transfer news. One that, well, quite a surprise to me, really. Dylan Groenewegen is joining Bike Exchange. Uh, Daniel, Richard, I don't know what you make of that move. Absolute humdinger of a signing from uh, Bike Exchange's point of view. They really needed someone like that. I think a focal point. They tried with Matthews, Michael Matthews, last year. Had a really good season, but... He has found himself, I think, crowded out in on certain terrains by riders who are more kind of sprintery or more more kind of climbers, and he probably needs to become something a bit more like what Magnus Court Nielsen was at the Vuelta España and winning more in breakaways. But now they can really sort of home in and focus on sprints and they've got, okay, Groenewegen's not going to bring anyone with him, I don't think, but they've got a team which is pretty well set up, I would say, for sprints. So for a, to create a sprint train, people like Amon Janssen, a Norwegian rider, um, Caden Groves, who they're sort of grooming as a sprinter himself, uh, the likes of Durbridge, uh, Mezgets. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think they could be quite great, formidable. It's a great signing, isn't it? And it raises the intriguing prospect the likely prospect i think of the two fastest sprinters at next year's tour de france being dylan grenewegen and fabio jacobson another thing chaps about this deal that i haven't seen too many people talk about is um the the role that giant bikes may have played because they've just announced or the team has just announced a long-term deal to ride on giant bikes and you remember a few months ago there were rumors about tom dumoulin joining bike exchange and that was mainly because of giants interest in having dumoulin on one of their bikes and um giants company that has big interest in the netherlands of huge manufacturing facility in the netherlands and i suspect that that the link um it also applies to grunewagen and it will be good news for giant in particular and before we get on to our questions uh, one bit of transfer news that we had 
speculated on. I think we thought was a done deal behind the scenes, but hadn't been confirmed, but has this afternoon been confirmed. And that is that the Ukrainian rider, Mark Padun, who has been riding for Bahrain Victorious, is joining EF Education Nippo for next season. This is actually something I spoke to EF Education's team manager, Jonathan Vorters, about a couple of weeks ago. We've heard from Vorters in a couple of previous episodes of the Annus Galacticus series. And, uh, well, I thought it'd be interesting to hear his thoughts on Padun because I started by expressing, I suppose, a degree of surprise that Padun would be uh, allowed to leave Bahrain victorious and uh, join another team. Well, you know, listen, we're, when we formally announce something, we're going to formally announce something, and we haven't done that yet. But, you know, I will say on a philosophical level, you know, I find it interesting that, that, that there's, there's a, you know, a degree of concern or skepticism or whatever it is over, over Mark. From my standpoint, you know, there are, there's plenty of information available for an athlete that's been in the world tour for four years regarding his biological passport, blood records, medical records that one can dig into and use a, you know, use a standard of, I don't know what I want to call it judgment, but a, a standard of discernment doesn't have to meet the same standards as as like a, a legal case that would go, be going to court over a suspension you can you can basically look and say well that looks a little fishy and you know and just not hire the guy uh, as opposed to if you're actually trying to suspend somebody you have to you have to dig into that quite a bit more and, and the, the bar is much higher you know listen i mean mark is a, a very religious very spiritual person from ukraine his parents live in chicago because essentially his parents, they were helped by the U.S. State Department to move to the U.S. as a result of the tensions between Ukraine and, and Russia. I think he's a guy with a very strong moral compass. And I think he's a guy that his talent is probably a little bit underrated. So, you know, when you see performances of a writer like him, you know, such as the Dauphiné, and you say, well, geez, you know, like, where did that come from? Nobody looks to the fact that the first three days of the Dauphiné, he was just pulling on the front to try to bring it back for a field sprint for Cobrelli. Well, of course he wasn't going to do well on GC. I mean, he actually, his history of putting some pretty big outsized performances in goes back quite a long way. You know, and then as part of due diligence in any athlete, you look into like, well, you know, what kind of size motor do they have? Uh, meaning, you know, you do all kinds of physiological testing. And what I will say, you know, with Mark is that when we had him physiologically tested, he's a, a six liter athlete, which that probably doesn't mean anything to you. But everyone, everyone always refers to VO2 max in relative VO2 max, meaning they say at 80 VO2 max. Well, what the 80 means is 80 milliliters per kilogram, right? Well, like let's eliminate the kilograms out of this because you know mark seems to be a rider that his weight fluctuates quite a bit but you know a six liter athlete means that his gross vo2 max is six liters meaning that if he were to weigh 60 kilograms so you do the math on that let's say he weighs 60 kilograms i'm not saying he should weigh 60 kilograms but if he did his vo2 max would be 100 i have never seen the test of a six liter athlete before ever i've never and, and the test was done many weeks after the season was over with when the, the athlete's out of shape. And I mean, I've heard that Greg LeMond may have done a six-liter test at one point during his career by legend. 
I've heard that Miguel Indurain may have done a six-liter uh, test at some point in his career, but again, by legend, certainly none of the athletes that I've ever worked with have ever had a six-liter view to max. You know, Bradley Wiggins would probably be the closest, and that's only guessing. Interesting. I mean, so, my, my, my skepticism was more that actually, um, yeah, those two results and the Dauphiné, you know, they were, they did make people sit up and take notice. Um, but mm. uh, I, I, I'm just surprised that they would, um, that Bahrain, you know, would not want to do more to, to have pinned him down a bit. But Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I can't really speak to that. I just, I don't think the Bahrain management and Mark saw eye to eye. With Mark, I, I could never find, it was, it, all I could find is like, you know, you had a couple like anonymous riders sort of like, complaining that he was going too fast and so i said okay well that's worth doing due diligence on but that's that's not worth condemning someone over just a small correction corner from jonathan vortis there he then sent me a message after we'd spoken to just confirm or clarify that padun's family live in seattle not in chicago apparently and if any listeners want to learn a bit more about mark padun chaps you made an episode of kilometer zero at the vuelta about padun obviously he was the kind of sensation of those final two days of the dauphiné before the tour de france wasn't he but uh, that episode of kilometer zero is on our feed if you scroll back to septemberish time at, at a time, Lionel, when, well, obviously he hadn't announced where he was going to ride in 2022 and it was still it still seemed a little bit murky and mysterious. A lot of people had assumed that Bahrain Victorious would, as you infer to Jonathan Vortas, they would jump at the chance to re-sign him. But that was not the vibe that we were picking up from them at the time. And then in, in subsequent weeks, there was a rumour that Ineos were interested already at the Vuelta. We'd well, we'd spoken to people at Ineos and there were conversations about Padun, but I think they took place earlier in the year. I'm not sure how close they were. I don't think they were that close at all um, to signing him in the last few weeks. But um, I think they had considered him um, in the summer and had pretty much decided that it wasn't something they were going to be interested in. Just another interesting signing for EF for next year, James Shaw is the subject of one of our selection box episodes over Christmas and year between Christmas and year for friends of the podcast. We'll be releasing daily friends specials as part of a selection box, uh, uh, a, a, a range of subjects similar to our Christmas selection box, lots of uh, variety in there. And uh, yeah, James Shaw and his, uh, his uh, return to the world tour after several years away is, uh, is subject of one of those episodes. And, and whatever we can salvage from the, the wine episode last night, the wine event, it might end up being... Oh, there we go, wine event again. It might end up being oh, a tiny little... The, sed, the yeah. sediment at, the bottom, there we at go. the bottom of the glass, I think. Or a little sip of oh, yeah, sherry, okay. a Christmas All right, you had a great time. Yeah, we know that. The Cycling Podcast, powered by Super Sapiens. Energy management for committed athletes and coaches. And now you can wear the Super Sapiens Energy Band, the first and only wearable that can display real-time glucose data directly from Abbott's LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. The Super Sapiens Energy Band is available at supersapiens.com for €159. Euros. Thanks very much indeed to our title sponsor, Super Sapiens. Very grateful to them for their support across all the cycling podcast 
output, uh, including Service Course, which uh, comes out later this week, another press conference episode with Tom, Wally and Lizzie Banks. So yeah, thanks very much to Super Sapiens. Let's hear a little bit about Super Sapiens from the founder and chief executive, Phil Sutherland. Let's go into the car world. Whether you drive a Honda Civic or whether you drive a Ferrari as your engine, you've got a couple things in common. Like with no gas in the tank, you both go the same speed. We all know that there's people who are physiologically gifted with a VO2 max of 90. There's people physiologically gifted with a VO2 max of 40. Whoever you are, whatever your genetics were, we want to help you become the best of yourself. That's what Super Sapiens is about. It's about helping you be the best version of yourself as frequently as possible. And you, know, you see the, the logo, you, know, you see the little dash to the S, that, that little dash is you in the breakaway. Super Sapiens is for the athlete who works for six months to go two seconds faster, just sacrifices everything at the chance for victory. You know, we, we all know, I mean, look, I, I did a master's race two weeks ago and I was in the 30 plus, I got second place. And then I did a master's race last weekend and they allowed the kids to race with me which I'm not good enough to race with the kids anymore. And I got eighth place, but that was the best I could do. So no matter who you are, we just want you to be the best of yourself. And you know, glucose and fueling optimization is very much a key for that you know, when you get on two wheels. Now, can we have our first question, please, for our press conference? Hi, this is Sandro Quevaro from uh, College from Los Angeles, California, a uh, friend of the pod big fan of the pod, uh, had a question regarding, you know, people like Teddy Pogacar or Primoz Roglic or other leaders, like previously Froome, now that he's over, but multiple winner of uh, multiple Tour de France and such, uh, Nibali. It seems like previous generation had riders that could win, I believe it's called the Triple Crown, like the Tour de Giro and uh, the World Championship. I think Merckx is one of the two and... and um, even Roach is the, the other one. Uh, it doesn't look like the riders are targeting these to me, and maybe it's just my impression. Are things changing in their respect where the level is so intense that somebody like Pogacar, which is obviously one of the greatest, if not the greatest rider, rider of this generation, could potentially win a Tour de France and Giro d'Italia in the same year and the world? Is it something that it's even, are the team and the coaches with the new technology and power meters and nutrition or even be able to target for or was it completely out of the question like that era was uh, uh unique in that sense uh and maybe substances that we used back then i know it's a taboo subject but uh allowed fatigue to um be managed differently uh than today so i'd be curious to see what you guys think about that um, I'll keep crushing. I wear my cycling uh, podcast uh, casket uh, very proudly. I'm, I'm proud to be a fan of the pod. Thank you. So a question there, chaps, from Sandro in LA about the Triple Crown. Um, the Triple Crown, last winner, of course, being Stephen Roach in 1987. He won the Giro, the Tour, and the Worlds. Um, with him... I, it, it wasn't something he set out to do at the start of the year. You know, it kind of, it almost happened by accident. Even, even the world championship road race itself, you know, he was there to help Sean Kelly primarily, although with, with Roach, um, there was always a possibility that uh, an opportunity would present itself for him <laughs> to, to, to win. And thus, and thus it did. Um, so he did win the Triple Crown, but all, not by accident, but it wasn't something that he set out to do. And I almost get 
it's it would be a difficult thing to set out to do i think uh, but i guess what you would need to do to win it would be to ride the giro and the tour to win both those races and and certainly we haven't seen that um i guess since, since chris Froome in 2018 uh, rode and won the Giro and then finished third in the Tour de France um, but yeah do we see any triple crown challenges on the horizon? I think that the big problem is what's well, the first two thirds of the of the equation isn't it the Giro and the Tour and we haven't seen anyone do it since Marco Pantani in 1998 we, we had this discussion about the Giro Tour double um, what it was quite it was quite a hot topic a, a few years ago with Nairo Quintana declared that he was going to try and do it and um, he, he fell a long way short and then in 2018 there was this unique opportunity because that year there were there were six weeks between the end of the Giro and the start of the tour and and sure enough Chris Froome won the Giro came very close at the tour was third at the tour but then also Tom Dumoulin was second in both um, but that as I say, it was a unique opportunity, really, because most years it's five weeks between the two races. And some years it's four weeks between the end of the Giro and the Tour. And, you know, in the course of these conversations we had with various people, we made a kilometre zero um, three or four years ago about the double. And there's always this topic of, of how you manage the period between the two is it two separate form peaks or are you essentially using the same one what do you do between those two races i think one big issue over the last few years in this era of marginal gains and trying to sort of squeeze out any advantage you can is that it's taken as red you need to spend a lot of time at altitude or you need to spend some time at altitude in particular to to prepare a grand tour in close proximity to a grand tour you also need to go to altitude and also the issue of reconning the route is problematic i think if you're going to recon the the route of two grand tours and often june is a time when some of those recons take place but you know when Froome, i mean i had a quick look at, at that 2018 giro after that he spent a week at home and then because there were the six weeks he could then do some recons in the alps but if there were only four weeks or five weeks then that becomes pretty difficult the the big the sort of mystery about this um the and, and it was again an issue that we addressed in that episode was how come Riders have managed to do it for the Vuelta because there are four weeks generally between the end of the tour and the Vuelta and Froome won both in 2017 and we've seen on numerous occasions um, riders go well in both of those races and the answer you generally get is that it's a, the Vuelta is slightly different, the, the stages tend not to be quite as long, the climbs tend to be not quite as long. I mean another, I went back and listened to that episode we made, another theory that we heard sort of espoused by one coach, Julian Pinot, Thibaut's brother, was that in the heat of summer, recovery t is is slightly more effective. Most people tend to recover slightly better in the heat. Um, and who knows whether that plays its part. And particularly if it's a cold Giro um, and the weather is bad in the Giro, then riders don't tend to recover as well. It's one of these things that 
does belong to a previous era of cycling, really. When you're talking about the gap between the two races, look back at 1987, there's only two and a half weeks between the end of the Giro, which finished on the 13th of June, and then the Tour de France started on the 1st of July and was only a couple of days shy of four weeks long, that Tour. It was the last of the long Tour de France before the three weeks became um, the, the, the standard length for the Tour. Um, so a completely different challenge then to the challenge that would face a rider now. And I don't think it is about talent and brilliance and ability, is it? Because, you, you know, Tadej Pogacar could win the Giro just as comfortably as he could win the Tour de France. And as we've seen from his one day riding, he can win the toughest one day races. It's all about that timing of being able to put those three events together. And so this kind of triple crown, as uh, the English-speaking world has called it, uh, largely because of Roach's victory, is it's not necessarily something that's uh, tailored to today's calendar, uh, I guess. And also, just on the point of the, the Tour and the Vuelta, the Tour is the hardest one to win. Um, the Tour is probably the, the most intense race, the hardest race. And uh, not saying the Vuelta is in any way easy, but probably as an athletic but also a mental challenge, probably easier to do uh, the Tour and then go to the Vuelta rather than win the Giro and then go, right, now comes the, the Tour de France, the really tough one. But whether anyone would target it, you, the problem is the rewards are fantastic, but to uh, declare um, that it's the goal of a season would, one, bring an awful lot of pressure and, um, you know, really the, the chances are that... Uh, whoever declared it would probably fall short and then the whole thing looks like a failure i think that was um you know that's something that uh, the riders would be very wary of actually setting out to do um but could somebody do it by accident well possibly hello richard lionel and daniel it's andy gladson from new york best friend of the podcast this past year and renewing that again in 2022 i have three questions since the inception of the podcast what is the comment or feature you most regret making and why is it in reference to Mark Cavendish? What do you think has changed most about or within the pro peloton? What has changed the most about the press room? And in your opinion, is that change good or bad? Thanks again for an amazing season of entertaining podcasting. I'm looking forward to spending another year on the train and in the car with you in 2022. Well, thanks very much for your questions, Andy Gladstone in New York, best friend of the podcast. Um, three questions there. Um, would you like to to start? To start them, Daniel, what's the comment you most regret making? How has the pro peloton changed and, and how has the press room changed? Well, the first one, Rich, the, the comment I most regret making is that bloody miscalculation I made about Pavel Sivakov and the moon last year because, I mean, this is talking about flogging a dead horse. This horse has been cremated, buried and... And this joke... Cremated got, and buried. And, and wow. I don't know if anyone's noticed, but I don't... I have not participated in the general mirth about this um over the last few months um i've i'm hoping that this will slowly fade away this will slowly fade from everyone's memory this faux pas good idea then to bring it up in this episode oh, isn't yeah. it <laughs> lionel you must have some comments you regret making the podcast uh, many but um the one i most regret i haven't made yet possibly still to come look forward to it that's something to look <laughs> yeah. forward to 
it's always good to look forward to some regret. Um, well, on the, on the second, <laughs> I mean, on the second part of Andy's question, Rich, um, I first read it, or I first heard it as, and what has changed the most since the inception of the podcast? And I was going to say Lionel's waist measurement um, after seeing him last night, seeing him last night, um, but I think he was talking about in cycling and in in the in a good way, I should say. Lionel's looking very svelte at the moment. Um, but he was talking about the pro peloton, Andy was, wasn't he? And these are really interesting questions. I mean, I think your reference to Mark Cavendish is probably a reference to um, various references I've made uh, to having upset Cavendish by by saying things. It's quite easy to upset Mark Cavendish sometimes. It's um, you know it, it, he kind of. He, you sound like you just about, of, you're about to upset him again now. <laughs> I think it's too late for me not to. But he, um, I, I talk about a bit about this in our Tour de France um, diaries, which are uh, released this week and next week for friends of the podcast. But yeah, there was a bit of beef with Mark Cavendish at the Tour this year. He can be somebody who takes uh, questions the, the wrong way, not the intended way sometimes. So I, I, I have... Um, upset him from time to time but i don't i don't think i regret making any comments i've made because they have been made in good faith uh, i haven't set out to uh, upset him or or offend him at all um who's, who's gonna wrestle the regret... shovel out of richard's hands line <laughs> <You> <laughs> regret mistakes i was going to say though that uh, in relation to the other the other questions um about the podcast and this is another plug i'm sorry but we have um recently been speaking to some friends of the podcast who have been guests who have been guests editing a special episode or special series of episodes on the kind of the history and origins of the podcast um that will be coming out in the new year and uh, they were three um best friends of the podcast who submitted similar ideas and were chosen to be guest editors of a, a friend special so there's a lot of this stuff i think in those episodes about how we started now eight years ago coming up for um eight was it eight years ago is my maths right coming up for nine years ago uh, on the eve of the 2013 tour de france and you know it still feels like quite a new thing but when you look back things have changed quite a lot they've changed a lot in the media as well and we do talk a lot about that um what's changed the most about the press room i mean the we're an example, I suppose, of how the media is, is changing because when we started doing the podcast, the year before we started doing the podcast, we were 100% dedicated print journalists and over time, uh, the balance of our work has changed enormously and I think that has been the case for quite a lot of people. A lot of journalists have had to be quite um, resourceful and be willing you know a lot more journalists going around with cameras now than there used to be even print journalists who 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 film things as part of their job for their newspaper so um the yeah the the press room has changed there's still a lot of um print journalists in there but there's a growing number of journalists who are more than just print journalists who do a lot of of other things related to the media now I was going to just answer the um, the second two there because uh, I don't really regret making anything as long as I've not you know offended anyone or upset anyone unintentionally. Um, don't regret making ridiculous predictions. That's mainly because I try not to make ridiculous predictions. It's uh, uh, you can often only be wrong if you're trying to predict. You know, for example, the winner of the 2018 Tour de France, Rich. You know, seven or eight, nine days in, um, as as you did. 
famously got that wrong, didn't you? Um, what's changed yeah, most? Just on that, Lionel. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, that that the point here. Yeah, I said that it was fanciful to imagine Garrett Thomas could win the Tour de France. The great thing about the podcast is that these mistakes become um, running gags, like your Sivakov one and the Moon Daniel. Much as you may disown it now. Um, the the beauty of the podcast, in as opposed to print, is that you can turn it in, into into something humorous rather than uh, be all you know regretful, remorseful about it. Yes. I, I hope that you can turn it into something humorous. It's like poking a bear, bringing that up, isn't it, with you, Rich? <laughs> uh, what's changed most about the pro peloton? Well, I was struck looking back at photos of the twenty thirteen race, Chris Froome, Naira Quintana, all the other GC riders, just how baggy their clothing was. Um, it just looks completely different. It looks really odd, um, as strange compared to today's bit, bit like clothing. Your clothing now, <laughs> yeah, well, I haven't, haven't bought anything that actually fits me yet. Um, that's uh, hoping Father Christmas brings me something. Um, <laughs> the clothing is baggier that you know uh, back then, and probably the difference is not far off being as stark as it was from you know ten or twelve years prior to that. Um, but now that the, the the aero suits, the skin suits, the speed suits, whatever you want to call them, are just standard. And also the bikes are more aerodynamic. You know, disc brakes obviously make them look very different, but just the frontal area and the, the clearance between the head tube and the, the tyres, the the bikes from 2013 now look solidly old-fashioned, retro almost. Um, and I think that's probably uh, had an impact on the racing as well um, in small, perhaps ways that you can't immediately see but clearly i think that the and again listening to what jonathan waters and others have been saying about that level of intensity and competition in the peloton all of those and people scoff a little bit at the notion of marginal gains but all of those incremental improvements to every aspect of performance and equipment uh, have changed the peloton and it's only really when you look back eight or nine years that you, the change becomes obvious because it's happened quite gradually and just lastly in terms of the press room i i thought that uh, the change as a result of COVID has kind of forced relations between the media and the teams to kind of grow up and formalise a little bit. And I think in ways that initially I would have thought would be negative in the sense that, you know, the, the, the distance between the teams and the media would, on the face of it, appear to be greater. But actually the there's a more transparent, more honest, more kind of sensible relationship, certainly in with regard to the mixed zones. And you can now, you know, f- quite um, simply ask the team staff, press officer, um, or the riders themselves as they come through the mixed zone, if they want to talk to you, and they can say yes or no. And that is a much, for me, certainly a, a much better arrangement than the previous kind of waiting outside the team buses with the VIPs and the the, um, the public who all get into those spaces um, and really make it quite undignified for everyone, you know, and, and probably not terribly safe or terribly desirable, particularly for the riders. And I don't think you get the best out of people um, when they're being absolutely swamped by cameras and uh, microphones. So I think that's actually an improvement, certainly from our point of view, whether um, I'd feel quite the same way if I was still writing long form features. I don't know. It might take longer to gather the material required for that. But certainly I think it's um, made those areas more pleasant to work in. I mean, from my point of view, as far as the peloton is concerned, although this concerns has something to do with the media as well. Um, I just took you said you looked at photos line. I took a quick sort of biopsy of um, 
well, some news coverage and headlines back in around the, the time where we launched the podcast in 2013, the summer of 2013, no. and just, you know, looked back at, you know, September 2013, uh, Tin and Locke called to clarify irregular blood values, Rasmussen suspension reduced to two years, this was all in one week, BMC head Swanyer alleged to have provided Hincapi with testosterone, Horner releases biopassport results, and so on and so on, and the, the shadow of of what had gone on in the previous 10 or 15 years was still very long and still very dark and pretty overwhelming at that point and it that would continue to be the case for two or three years and it's just it's quite remarkable to see how that has that that particular topic doping has really faded from certainly from the the forefront of the pro cycling discourse um for good or bad reasons, I think we've got another question later about doping, and we will maybe well, let's, discuss it. Let's in, hear, hear well, it now. I was just gonna, I was just gonna add, Rich, as far as the the press room as well is concerned. I mean, to be honest, unfortunately, I think morale has worsened because partly because I think for a long time, print journalism and journalists, and well, journalists in general, had a, a maybe a justified sort of self importance in professional cycling because they had played a massive role in in the narrative of the sport and how the sport was was communicated conveyed to the general public if you go back to sort of the 50s and when you know you couldn't watch races and and everything that was absorbed by the public was was through the medium of you know um, newspaper reports and so on and so forth so they occupied a pretty prominent position and then of course we had newspapers that owned races that organized races and so on and so forth and I think the last um, the last 10 years has been a real sort of sinking feeling in the press room particularly among the written press of, of, of how their sort of role in in the general narrative and how cycling is consumed has become smaller and smaller and there's a feeling that it's it's really fading to almost nothing and um, yeah I think that's been quite quite sad to observe I mean it's a big topic probably for another day but um, I I've I've certainly felt a bit a bit of a um, um, a melancholy kind of mood among the. I the I, press. I agree with that. I I would add that I think that it has always been the 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 typical journalist disposition to be cynical and negative. I I remember when I got into this trade in the 1990s. Um, a, a guy who helped me a lot, who I'll not not name, but I have um, named him before good friend but he was your classic kind of hack who um constantly was telling me how the industry was doomed and it was not what it used to be and blah 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 and when i look back at it now the 90s were the absolute golden age the of roaring 90s, journalism. Yeah. absolutely and i found that attitude very prevalent then um so yeah a, i tend to think that it's it's a, it's a sort of typical journalist attitude and, and i you know partly through the experience we've had with the podcast, you know, 10 years ago, I would have been very skeptical, um, pessimistic myself about the future of uh, journalism and about my own future as a journalist. Um, and thanks to the podcast, you know, over the last few years, I've felt a lot more positive and optimistic about it. And I don't think that's because, you know, podcasting is not for everybody, but it's something that, that, that I didn't see on the horizon so who knows what else 
is out there that we don't see on the horizon. And I think we can see on social media, there's a, a young generation of uh, ambitious journalists, sports journalists, cycling journalists, um, who don't share that sort of disposition, that feeling of, of uh, pessimism and negativity and are, are looking to what they can do and how they can make a living in this industry um, and can obviously see opportunities and avenues for themselves. And there, I think there are and will be. Um, so it, it's changing, isn't it? I mean, it's changed uh, beyond all recognition, but it's not necessarily all bad. Should we hear the next question? Because it links nicely to the point that you just made, Daniel. Hi, my name is John from the Wirral. I get incredibly angry whenever I read a casual comment on Twitter or Facebook implying that everyone in the modern peloton is juiced up or on drugs of some kind, like the bad old days. On the other hand, I'm also disgusted at those periods in cycling and that they nearly killed the sport. The question is, am I right to be angry and is it unfair or am I just being naive? What are your thoughts, men? And great show, by the way. Well, thanks very much for your question, John. Um, are you right to be angry? Or are you being naive? I mean, you, you've 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 asked a very important question, um, and you've in your own sort of feelings of like confusion or ambivalence or something, you, you've kind of probably summed up how a lot of people feel. Um, and as I said, it does link nicely to the point you were just making, Daniel. Where ten years ago, and for several years before that, every every second question or more in cycling was related to doping and that is certainly not the case these days is that because there's less doping or is that because the subject is just has just faded again as it as it as it had done in the in the in the early 90s before Festina and in the 80s with disastrous consequences of course because certainly in the 90s um you know, while EPO was becoming rampant, the subject wasn't really being talked about and everybody paid the price for that. Are we making the same mistake now or are any feelings of optimism we have about the state of the, the sport now um, grounded in, in, in logic and good sense and, and clear intelligence? I mean, you know, there, there, are, re there are reasons to be optimistic about it and um, we heard it earlier in this episode from Jonathan Vauters who runs a world tour team a very successful world tour team whose raison d'etre I suppose right from the start has been to prove that you can compete at the highest level without doping I mean that should be the case for every world tour team of course that should be the mission for every world tour team but it's not quite perhaps so clear um, or so central to the team's ethos as at um, EF Education Nepo. Um, so, but but they do, they provide, a, if you like, if we can trust in that team, um, they provide evidence that it's possible to compete and win at the top level um, without doping. We do tend to, we, you talked earlier about marginal gains and the changes that we've seen over the last decade. Um, we're certainly pretty clear that the teams are all very committed now to seeking as many of those advantages as they can. Again, that should always have been the case, but in terms of equipment, clothing, nutrition, training, altitude camps, etc., 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 they are all taking care 
and very committed to these details that perhaps weren't so central in the past. I mean, I always remember Chris Boardman in the 90s talking about the culture of doping and using EPO in the 90s um, as being a, a kind of crutch, you know, something that he remembers his teammates um, fiddling around with Allen keys, adjusting their time trial bikes while warming up for time trials because these were the sorts of details they weren't taking care of because they considered that doping was a sort of panacea for everything. Um, I'm sure that was part of the culture back then. But of course, if you are taking care of all the details and also doping, you're unbeatable. So, so where are we now? I mean, we, we don't we don't know. We don't have any clear answers on this. But how do you feel about the question, Daniel? Well, yeah, you, you say that about Chris Boardman. I had a conversation with Bjarne Reese a few months ago where he talked about how lazy riders were in the 90s generally and EPO was a crutch. But... Um, We've seen in the last couple of weeks, few weeks, there have been some comments from well, a couple of French riders that some people might see as alarming. Um, Arnaud Demars in his in the book that he released, um, talking about um, well, sort of two-speed cycling. But again, if you drill down, his main bone of contention seemed to be about ketones, and then. A few days ago, Roman Bardet gave an interview to Le Keep in which he talked about, he sort of bemoaned the lack of clarity on ketones. And, and you know, part of me thinks these are sort of champagne problems, really, when you compare them to what I was talking about in 2013, 2014. Um, you know, ketones are illegal, they're a nutritional supplement, and Bardet's gripe really was that the UCI has now advised people not to take them, um, but they're still they're still not on any kind of ban list so that that's created a sort of ambiguity but um i think the more the slightly more worrying thing that he said was about the volume of testing in the last year or so and if you look at wada's figures and what wada have said they sort of claim that testing is back to pre-pandemic levels um if you go back and look at the the, the, the their numbers in every sport they dipped um, particularly out of out of competition testing dipped almost by well 50 percent um, as soon as the pandemic struck in in around march but now it is nominally notionally they say back to normal levels but you know anecdotally you know Bardet says that he doesn't feel he's been tested very much we've heard this as well on numerous occasions over the last year or so um so you know that might be alarming but you know you use the word you talked about culture before rich and i think cycling has been really successful in changing the culture and the testing and the improvement in testing has only been really a small part of that um the biological passport has played its part but i think things like the no needle ban and just the peer pressure that was created and we've talked before about how this oil tanker started to turn around with people like jonathan waters bob stapleton in 2008 where they started to the social norm started from being doping the social norm started to become not doping and and that's still i suppose the biggest source of of optimism for for me and and i think for all of us that we still think that the culture is more weighted towards um and look, looks more kind of sympathetically on those who won't countenance doping than on those who who do and who would you know put pressure on teammates and and other riders to to follow their lead yeah, I mean, if you think back to those years, 2006, 7 and 8, which we talk about quite a lot as being the, the sort of um, the, the peak of the industrial EPO, blood doping, blood transfusion era, if you'd thought then that 
scroll forward to 2021 and you'd be talking about ketones, which obviously wouldn't have heard of uh, back then. And uh, some of the other um, techniques and, and the, the types of things that the movement for credible cycling are talking about, you would think, well, doping hasn't been eradicated, but the windows of opportunity and the, uh, the, the impact uh, of the doping would be significantly reduced. Um, and I think that possibly is is the case just on testing numbers daniel i actually asked the uci and the international testing agency at the start of the year what the figures for cycling were during the pandemic year and they claimed that there was only a 15 percent reduction in out of competition samples collected in cycling uh in uh, the, the season most affected by the pandemic um i wonder i think there were a few months well the months when there was no racing in particular those sort of march april may june july that was probably it was well well down and then probably recovered later on in the year well yeah the, the testing at events was obviously um was obviously down because there, there were no events to to test at and so um yeah, clearly you know <laughs> It, the pandemic changed lots of things for everybody but year on year for um the periods when racing resumed you know there hasn't been a sort of drop off and i think the, the figures that they supplied at the start of the year are back up uh, what you were saying there that that it's bounced back to the pre-pandemic levels of testing the other thing is that i think when ann gripper was at the uci as head of anti-doping there was a real um ideological shift away from the idea that the anti-doping effort was about catching people almost at random so you just reel off the numbers into a much more grown-up kind of targeted testing and not wasting resources on people who through the biological passport were you know the most likely to um, not be flirting with the rules. I mean, you know, th th that was the idea, wasn't it, of the biological passport coming along to to try to redefine almost the parameters and, and as I say, just, just tighten those windows of opportunity to the point where the effort was not worth the reward because the substances that could do have the most impact would be the most easily detected and, and so on. Um, I'm not saying it's all rosy in the garden necessarily um, and I'm always suspicious when everything is so so quiet compared to those years um, but it's not and like it, not like i'm hearing from people that you know i've talked to um over the, the 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 late part of this year you know what's the state of the nation i'm not getting the sense that there's something you know dramatic happening that that people who are playing by the rules are really concerned about necessarily and, and chaps i think you have to ask yourselves how would our view our perspective on things flip and how quickly and how radically would it flip and it would the answer is very if one top rider someone who finished in the top 10 of the Tour de France tomorrow tested positive for a, or was was exposed as as using some you know miracle had, new drug or even a, you know in a EPO bit of a, or an old drug um, i think that would make us ask questions about yeah about the whole top 10 oh yeah, in the tour uh, or the absolutely. whole top 10 in the world um, we had a bit of a moment different. like that this year with Byron Victorious didn't we at the Tour de France with the the police raid and the subsequent claims that mm. Uh, you know, a, a non-banned uh, substance was found in uh, hair follicles. Um, you know, and that that does bring that kind of raises those those skeletons or brings those skeletons out of the cupboards, doesn't it? To some extent, and you do you do begin to wonder. But but then also at the same time, you hear in some teams how much of a focus is on fueling. You know, and you, you know you say Lionel that if you could have uh, imagined 15 years ago that we'd be talking about ketones, well, imagine if 15 years ago we'd have been talking about carbohydrates 
Um, but you know the the revolution in fueling over the last few years, and and the first time I was properly aware of this was the 2018 Giro and Chris Froome's uh, ride, uh, you know, to win stage 19, wasn't it at the Giro? Um, and how much uh, the fueling strategy was part of that. Now again, some people will roll their eyes at that, but we were told at the time that, that one of the real um, secrets, if you like, to this performance was the fueling strategy, and. Uh, and now, you know, a few years on, all the teams are talking about how important fueling is and how much of an emphasis it, it's got now in terms of just how much the riders are taking in, um, you know, more than they, they can at, at some, they're, they're, you know, they're being asked to take in more carbohydrates than they really feel able to at some points. But um, it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's interesting. And, and um, I think there's also reassurance in the consistency of the performances of the top riders you know you talked about van art at the weekend winning the cyclocross taddy pogacar you know pretty much every race he turns up to he's taddy pogacar tour de france winner that's not everything but it does there is sort of reassurance in the consistency of the performances of the very top riders there aren't these huge kind of fluctuations in form they don't disappear for weeks or months on end and not race you know when they turn up for races they're often racing to win and that's that's the case across the board um and i, I think there is a bit of re reassurance in that but as you say as you both say um uh you know a revelation of, of something or a positive test among one of those top riders and we would start to question everything that's the nature of it yeah and, and just finally rich just as a footnote you know you say Riders don't disappear for long times. I mean, we do we do see riders. I mean, you mentioned Roglic. Um, you know, last year he he really didn't race, did he, before the Tour de France, and he sort of showed up. Um, and it, and he has this habit of going very well after altitude but that, training that, camps. I but... mean, they all that's that's across the board too. That you know they will go away for weeks to an altitude training camp and take themselves out of racing. But when they what I mean is when they turn up to races, they are they're always racing to win pretty much that's Seb PK the voice of Radio Tour to remind me to tell you that this episode is sponsored by ShipStation if you run a small business that sells online this is probably the busiest time of your year hopefully it is at least hopefully you've got loads of orders coming in every day and if you don't use ShipStation already it might be just the service to make your business run more smoothly because it can help you manage the whole sales process from the point where the order comes in to the point where you get the goods out of the door and on their way to your happy customers. ShipStation can import orders from just about every sales channel, whether you sell on Amazon or eBay, Etsy or your own website. It automates just about every step of the shipping task from generating uh, the postage labels to generating delivery notes and invoices and just keeping on top of the orders uh, as they come in so that you can see what's been dispatched and what hasn't, all from one easy-to-use dashboard. I've used it in the past and it really does work as simply as that. And ShipStation uses all major carriers internationally and locally, including FedEx, USPS and UPS. So both you and your customers have peace of mind that once you've uh, sent your parcels and post on their way, they will reach their destination 
in good time. According to ShipStation, 98% of companies that use the service for a year keep using it for as long as they're in business. So if you would like to make your holiday season a little bit brighter with ShipStation, you can use the offer code CYCLING to get a 60-day free trial. That's cycling to get a 60-day free trial. Or just go to ShipStation.com, click on the microphone at the top and enter the code CYCLING. ShipStation. Make ship happen. Hi, chaps. Um, I'm Julian, a Belgian living in Amsterdam, and I wanted to know your thoughts about Remco Evenepoel's prospects for next season. Uh, it feels like it's a big year coming up for Remco's career. Uh, the year just gone was very much a transition year and coming back from a, a horrific injury. But next season, he has to make it count. As you know, in Belgium, Remco's a divisive figure. Some people see him as the bright hope of Belgium cycling. Others dislike him because he talks too much for someone who's won so little on the world tour. Patrick Lefebvre rarely backs the wrong horse, but has he on this occasion? How do you see next season for Remco? Thanks and keep up the good work. Thanks for your question, uh, Juliana, Belgian in Amsterdam. A big year coming up for Remco Evenepoel. We spoke a bit about Evenepoel last week, didn't we, in our um, Grand Tours episode, talking about his his uh, Giro um, performance. Uh, Julian says that in Belgium he's a, a divisive figure. Um, I think that's that's increasingly true. I mean, you know, his role at the World Championships has been put under the microscope a bit. Um, was he there to help Wout van Aert or to look f- out for his own chances? It looked like his his trade teammate Tim de Klerk was a, a little bemused by his tactics when they were in that early breakaway. Um, a big thing in Belgium is always the Flandrian of the Year uh, competition, and and every year there's a, a shortlist. Um, I think he won it a couple of years ago, certainly after his first year as a professional rider, Flandrian of the Year. He was on the shortlist this year, and. I understand received very few votes from his fellow Belgian professionals. It's voted for by the Belgian pros. So it seems that within Belgian cycling, within, you know, that his fellow among his fellow professional riders, his stock has fallen a little bit. And he doesn't seem to be doing himself many favours, does he, with some of his comments in the press. Eddie Merckx is, um, has been critical of him. That may well date back to Evenepoel having agreed in principle to join Axel Merckx's development team action and then uh, turning professional instead for De Koenig Quickstep. Who knows, that could be the origins of the beef with Eddie Merckx. But Evenepoel, um, still very young. Um, Patrick Lefebvre and and Quickstep have invested a lot in him uh, to really carry the team over the next few years. Um, Is that going to be a sensible move? I mean... What do we see? What's the future for Remco Evenepoel? Is he going to have to to wind his neck in a bit, or will that not matter if he if he wins the biggest races? I mean, I think for me there are there are echoes of of Bernard Eno. You know, you think back to Eno and how he was as a very young rider, how he led that riders' strike at the seventy eight Tour de France, his first Tour de France, and he became the sort of leader um, of the riders. And he got away with it because he won. And Eno got away with a lot of bad behaviour because he won, because he was the champion of his generation. And I don't think you can get away with that that sort of outspokenness unless you are that figure. And I think at the moment, Evenepoel is, is the outspoken rider of his generation. But whether he can back that up by also being the champion remains a, a bit of an open question for me. 
I mean, in terms of Julian's question, has Lefebvre backed the wrong horse? I mean, I think it's still too early to say. Uh, Evenepoel didn't win a World Tour race this year, did he? But he did win the the Belgium Tour and the Tour of Denmark and three uh, pretty prestigious one-day races. And he's won San Sebastian before. He's won the Tour of Poland before. And it's worth bearing in mind he's still incredibly young, 22 at the end of January. And by this age, Wout van Aert and Matthew van der Poel were yet to win a pro race on the road. I know that they were much more focused on cyclocross and hadn't really had many opportunities on the road at that point. And they certainly weren't riding for a team of De Kernic quick steps stature. But still, um, Evan Poel is ahead of them. He's a kind of he's on the sort of Sagan trajectory, really, of, of winning, um, you know, having won some World Tour races by the age he is um but i think this year was curious i mean you know not so much backing the wrong horse but lefevre went all in on evnepool at the giro without him having raced before the giro i thought that was a strange idea to put so much pressure on him and um of course it didn't work out well not just for him but for the team overall not exactly harmonious as we talked about in our grand tours episode last week but uh, clearly a massive talent and as we know from the history of cycling and as you just said there Richard if the results come then you know he'll get away with um, get away with uh, you know running his mouth off or you know attacking from 65 kilometers out if it works it will be forgiven everything won't he I think we need to put well the extent to which he he is a outspoken or some kind of firebrand or agent provocateur in, in in context. I mean, it's pretty mild compared to. I mean, he's not he's not Donald Trump, is he? Or, you know, <laughs> he's not I been mean, he's not been banned said, from Twitter, as far as I know. He said a few mildly mildly contentious things in the last last few months. Um, but my my question with him really is, I still don't know what rider he's going to be, and I think the fact that he's not a particularly fast finisher limits him slightly um and, and i'm also not convinced that well on the evidence of the Giro, i know that unusual circumstances but i think he struggled in the in the mountains particularly going down the mountains and that raised question marks over his future as a grand tour rider so what does that leave you know you'd like to see him win i don't know what his race program is yet but you'd like to see him win a race of the stature of sort of a paris or a tirreno maybe um, one of the absolute top level one week stage races. And then I think he's going to focus on the Vuelta um, as far as Grand Tours are concerned. I mean, you say mild, uh, Daniel, um, and, it, and it is mild, but in the context of him being in a... In the context of everyone uh, being so team. nice now, cyclists all being so nice to each other, uh, there's no beef anymore. Uh, yeah, but, you know, his... his what he said after the world championships questioning the tactics and questioning whether van art whether whether van art was, was you know the right guy to be the sole leader of the team and then not going to the the debrief afterwards showed a sort of especially for a 21 year old rider at the start of his career showed a sort of disrespect for his teammates i think and you know judging by the comments of some of them they felt that he had uh you know, well, just sort of just a bit, a bit of youthful, zealous overzealousness. No, maybe just, just yeah, yeah. I think you have to make some allowances for his age and mm. and the pressure that he's under in Belgium. Hi, Cycling Podcast. My name is Rob. 
And my question is about Chris Froome. Specifically, is he damaging his legacy by continuing to ride at such a low level, finishing the Gruppetto at the Tour, etc.? He's not made his comeback, not to be harsh, but it doesn't look like it's going to happen. There's kind of a new generation of riders, which he may have even struggled to beat when he was at his peak. He's not going to win another Tour. Should he keep riding, even though he's getting a lot of money, uh, is it right that he's getting paid so much? And um, should he retire? And by not doing so, is he damaging his legacy? And also, do you think he cares about legacy? Uh, or is he kind of more interested in just earning as much money as he can from the spot before retiring? Thank you very much. And um, thanks for the great podcast that you keep putting out. Thanks for your question, Rob. Chris Froome. It's a good question, isn't he? Is he damaging his legacy or risking damaging his legacy by riding on without um without being able to contend for wins um what do you think lionel you're shaking your head and he's learning from the master of sort of diplomacy and tact patrick lefevre isn't he i mean uh, what a role model on to the next question no one remembers eddie Merckx in a fiat in a fiat jersey do they no no because once riders have retired no one remembers the the kind of the fizzle out phase of people's careers, do they? No one, no one looks back at Greg LeMond's career and said, no, or, or Greg LeMond and go, oh, well, wasn't, it wasn't 93 and 94 all disappointing. Yes, it was, but that doesn't in any way take the gloss or shine off the things that these riders achieved. And everyone's career has a similar trajectory, doesn't it? There is a, a you know, very few actually bow out right at the very top. Um, having, you know, just stepped off a Tour de France podium. I mean, you know, did did Lance Armstrong damage his legacy by coming back? I mean, <laughs> a different uh, a different question. But no, I don't think it damages his legacy. And on the subject of of the the money, I mean, you know, as, as professional cycling, like most professional sports, are such pure. Um, expressions of capitalism that once the money has been offered and accepted that's a matter for the two parties or however many parties are involved I mean the team might feel that they're not getting what they want in terms of results um, but maybe they'll have to reevaluate that and go well how do we get value for money um, from having arrived remember Merck's in a CNA jersey in the team that was his last I was going to say the CNA yeah. jersey yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Well, you, you could argue that the one thing that's missing from Chris Froome's legacy or what will be Chris Froome's legacy is a greater degree of affection or a degree of affection befitting of a four-time Tour de France champion and I you could also argue that I think on the ground, uh, for those people who will pay close attention to it or for us who were there last year, um, you know, I think he went some way to redressing that last year with well, the way he battled through very bravely at the Tour de France after crashing early on and just, you know, his dealings with the media. Um, I mean, he's absolute sort of model um, professional and, and customer to deal with as far as we were concerned. So, you know, it, it, he could be helping his legacy in that sense although I'm not sure how much of that sort of radiates beyond as I say those people on the ground and and I I don't think it really touches that sort of hard shell of a pretty ardent Chris Froome opponents or Chris Froome skeptics or or enemies that you know sort of lurk on social media. So you think in 30 years people will be saying do you remember Chris Froome in an Israel startup nation jersey? Um, who knows? Uh, but 
Uh, that'll be the equivalent of Daniel Freeman 30 years. We'll be saying that. Um, I agree, Lionel, that in 10 years, I don't think it will matter when we, we look at Chris Froome. But in some respects, um, the way that somebody retires does define them. I'm thinking of Injurane. You know, the way that he stopped, the way he retired is quite a quite a big part of the Injurane story. And Eno. The way that Eno retired, the way that Eno retired is certainly a big part of the Eno story, you know, to just go out on the top. And this links to uh, a comment that's made by Ian Boswell in our episode next week, our alternative awards episode. He has come up with an award. I don't want to give away what it is, but... Uh, there are one or two riders who've retired this year um, who've gone out on their own terms at the top. And Dan, Dan Martin went out having won a stage of the Giro. Anna van der Breggen is a great example, the women's peloton of a rider who has gone out at the absolute nice top bow of on her the, game. You know, put it on yeah. career. Yeah. Uh, and so it does show a sort of uh, a level of, of almost control and, the, you know, to see Froome now struggling and, and finishing the Gruppetto and being dropped by quite a big group um, certainly affects the way we look at him now. And it, it certainly, um, you know, removes the sort of the mystique to some extent. But I don't think in 10 years it will matter an awful lot. But it will be part of the Chris Froome story, the, the way that his career was in, in effect uh, brought to a premature end by a terrible crash but that he carried on uh, struggling to get results assuming that he's not able to turn it around next year of course the cycling podcast is supported by science in sport science in sport fueled by science thanks very much indeed to science and sport our longtime sponsor i'm very grateful to them for their support and if you'd like 25 percent off all your science and sport products go to scienceandsport.com and enter the discount code, Daniel, S-I-S-C-P-25. There we go. I almost, there we go. almost forgot it myself there. S-I-S-C-P-25. It's tough. It is tough. It's a tough one to remember. <laughs> it's really not. Um, Lionel, you did a big ride the other day. Did you use a lot of uh, science and sport products to get your... Have you got a, t- a new tasting test for us? I haven't actually today, no. Um, but on my ride, uh, which will be the subject of an episode of Explore to go out in the week before Christmas, it's called The Twelve Hills of Christmas and all will be explained in that episode. I did uh, take, well, the full complement of science and sport products. I had a bidon filled with the beta fuel. Um, I had a tiramisu bait. What does the beta fuel taste like? I was curious about the beta fuel. What does it taste like? Well, Daniel, my beta fuel flavour was lemon lime, and it was very refreshing oh, okay. and uh, yeah, nice, pleasant to drink. I've got a lot. Of, I've got a lot. I've got a lot of questions for Stephen Moon about science and sport and um, and um, sports nutrition in general. But I fear that he might not want to answer them after I announced in a podcast a couple of weeks ago that I'm going to go into competition against him steal steal his ideas I'm sure he'd be delighted to I mean I'm sure he'd be delighted to talk to you Um, we should set that up in the new year I think but yeah I went with the the full compliment I had the the beta fuel which Richard as you mentioned uh, you know very um, carbohydrate heavy uh, but not heavy to drink. It means that you're taking on carbohydrate without getting uh, you know, full up with, with real food that you then have to digest. And uh, the tiramisu bake was a little pick-me-up, eh? Halfway round. And I had the emergency gel, which I didn't have to call on. Um, I didn't need it, so I didn't have it. But it was there in my back pocket just in case. Hello, my name is Bertrand from Belgium, 
From the few images I've seen from the tour of Great Britain, I have the impression that there were more spectators there than in some races in France like the Dauphiné. Am I right? If you could create a new race, which race would it be? Think of a race that would have the potential to become a classic quickly. Uh, by the way, it can even be in Britain. Well, a couple of questions from Bertrand there. I would say your impression about the Tour of Britain is right. I was there this year and the crowds really were impressive. I think the organisers do a great job of informing the people who live and work and particularly the schools uh, nearby where the race is going to pass and, and letting them know that race is coming and what time it's coming so that people are out in force. And certainly the Dauphiné, when I've attended, haven't been for a few years, but the Dauphiné, a bit like Paris-Nice, can be quite, no quite be ghostly, can't it? I mean, there'll be a few people. There is no one There's there. no one there, Daniel. Yeah, as you, as you say, Daniel, they're very, very quiet events. And uh, I think it definitely lends a sense of atmosphere and occasion to the Tour of Britain, having big crowds. And in terms of creating a race, well, I was so taken by the Great Orm stage of the Tour of Britain this year that I'd love to see a one-day classic in Wales. I think there's the terrain for it. I think there's the demand for it. And I think with the Great Orm, there could be an absolutely fantastic finish when we saw Wout van Aert and Julian Alaphilippe going shoulder to shoulder around the, the steep bend there. It did feel like a classic. And uh, yeah, that would be something that I think there would be a demand for, not just from spectators on the ground, but also TV viewers. We complain every year about Flesh Well On and you want to recreate it in Wales. Not, no, 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 no. Very similar, no? Well, you don't have to necessarily finish it at the top of the climb. You could go over okay, and round. Okay. You could, you know, you could, there's loads uh, of things yeah, you could do. You yeah, could vary okay. it. You could have a an uphill finish one year and a flat finish the next and rotate it round and keep everyone guessing. Or maybe only announce announce the finish in the morning. Rather than a new race, I'd like to bring back an old race, Bordeaux-Paris. I think the time is absolutely right for a race like that. We were at the Ghent Six a few weeks ago, Lionel, and we said how the in a six-day meeting like that, the, the Derny racing is just fantastic. I'm not saying it would be the same in a race from Bordeaux to Paris, which is, well, which was 560 kilometres. I mean, it was one of the oldest races, started in the late 19th century, ran all the way to 1988, I think the last one was. Um 1891 I read it started I was going to say that that is a long race over 100 no almost 90 years yeah 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 <laughs> uh, 560 kilometers um motor pace Derny's um and I think in this era of uh, a fascination with uh you know a kind of new new type of racing the transcontinental race um the you know off-road uh, racing uh, gravel racing um there there's a kind of I think an appetite for races that are a bit different, quirky, and Bordeaux Paris is has got the tradition, but also it does appeal, I think, to that that modern taste for something a little bit different. So Bordeaux Paris would be a a great race to bring back, I think, and I think you'd see. Um, I mean, you always used to get like Jacques Anquetil used to ride it sometimes, didn't he? Tom Simpson uh, rode and won it, I think. Um, so it did attract some of the top roadmen as they were called in those days um and and why not why not again bordeaux paris bring it back do you remember the amsterdam derny race which was a lot shorter um no anyone 
Anyone remember that? I think it lasted into the early 2000s. I've got a memory of Ballerini winning it. Um, I'm pretty sure Michael Bogut might have won it one year. But that was uh, motor-paced racing outdoors on the road. Mm. Circuits, it was. Daniel, I mean, you, you, this, we're losing you, aren't you, with any, any suggestion of a crossover with indoor cycling and outdoor cycling. Um, yeah, yeah. I went. I had a few sort of whimsical ideas for one-day races, sort of classic-type races, courses that would be either very sort of photogenic, telegenic, or just make for really good racing. Um, I think something something that really sort of shows off, showcases Norway, Norwegian roads to better effect. Well, not to better effect than the existing races, but it's just a bit of a shame that the Arctic Race of Norway, the, the Tour of Norway, and Tour of Fjords haven't had more widespread sort of coverage or recognition over the last few years so something in showcasing the fjords um there's the famous troll road the trollstigen road um ordnersvingen is another very famous sort of hairpin climb and there's another road it's about 230 kilometers one of the most spectacular drives in norway lofoten national tourist route on the sort of archipelago up in the north west corner of norway and it goes over bridges through underground tunnels and uh, up around pretty significant climbs and it just looks absolutely spectacular so that would be great i think a reprisal of the last stage of or penultimate stage of the welter this year in galicia the fame now famous stage designed by oscar pereiro the superman lopez stage um it was perfect for a classic it was kind of a like a little liege baston liege that would be great and another one it's, it's pretty, um, the I mean, classic quite an achievement there by superman lopez to have the stage named after him for climbing yes. off and getting in <laughs> a team car it. yeah <laughs> Yeah, the Superman classic. Um, yeah, um, and the uh, last one. This, just is, this would be great. I mean, the, if it was the Superman classic, and there was some kind of uh, <laughs> first, first to get into the car, um, <laughs> the Superman classic. I love it. Um, and finally, just because it's a part of Europe that I really love, um, the the Basque Country. Sometimes I think the classic of San Sebastian doesn't show off that part of the Basque Country to the best to its best effect, or it gets overlooked or ignored. Um, the classic of San Sebastian takes place on a Saturday, doesn't it? Yes. Um, how about a sort of mirror image of the classic of San Sebastian, but in the concentrating really on the French Basque Country? So starting somewhere like Po and finishing in Biarritz and sort of finishing going over some of those kind of rolling climbs. Um, there was a brilliant stage of Vuelta a couple of years ago, Daniel, after the time trial in Pau, which was in the French Basque Country, and it was absolutely stunning. Did it yes. finish in the Spanish Basque Country? But it, it went in the... It was a lot of it was yeah. in the French Basque Country, and it was absolutely spectacular. Tiny little roads and, yeah, really beautiful. Exactly. I'd also like to, I mean, we're, we're kind of reviving, I'm reviving things or thinking of things from the past to bring back. But I think the peace race, I'd love to see the peace race come back just because I'm fascinated and would like the opportunity to travel more around Eastern Europe and learn a bit more about um, the countries that were previously behind the Berlin Wall. Um, I've been making a Friends of the Podcast episode for early next year, which touches on this a little bit. And uh, yeah, I'd, I'd definitely put my hand up to go and still do. exists in under twenty three category. If I'm not, I'm not. I, I, I think, think so, our trip yeah. to Budapest uh, on for the Giro next year is going to be fascinating from that point of view to really open a little window onto uh, 
you know, cycling, the cycling culture there. We did that a bit with our Giro, didn't we? But to learn a bit more about, you know, see how cycling is received there. I mean, we had a taste of that at the Giro uh, this year when it went into Slovenia and the crowds were just phenomenal. Um, So that's going to be interesting, I think, Budapest next year. Hi, guys. Dan from Oxford here. Um, Happy Christmas. So climate change, is it really defensible to fly the whole cycling industry from Europe to Sydney just for the UCI World Championships. I mean, I love my cycling, but it strikes me that it's pretty negligent at this time. Return trip is almost 11 tonnes of carbon dioxide, which is double a UK person's CO2 footprint for a whole year, or six times somebody in India's. So I guess the question is, should cycling be taking itself a bit more responsibly and hosting these championships somewhere much closer to where all the pros live? Cheers, guys. Thanks for your question, Dan. A really important question um and it specifically about the world championships in australia next year but the the issue of what professional cycling um uh, should do in in terms of uh, reducing its carbon footprint um and a point you've raised lionel as well and you've raised it in your audio diary from last year's tour de france because you made a kilometer zero there about climate change the the sort of almost um, equally important question in a way, but one that we haven't thought about is how climate change also affects professional cycling and how um, over time we could see events like the Tour de France move to a different time of the year because it won't be possible to hold them in high summer in France. Um, so there's lots of considerations. Um, the, we did get another written question about the World Championships in Australia, but I'll um, ask you that in a moment or two. What What is your response to Dan's question is it really defensible to fly the whole cycling industry from europe to australia for the world championships well it's a tricky one this because we're in a strange place aren't we where there's been a real push for globalization in sports not just cycling but look at other high higher profile sports and their you know quest to literally put their footprints in other parts of the globe i mean formula one has gone all over the world i mean uh, not that long ago the copa libertadores final was uh, rearranged and played in madrid flying two south american teams over to play a match in madrid for absolutely no reason whatsoever i mean the the difficulty is that um you're very quickly into a debate about whether certain parts of the world should be allowed to host what has traditionally been a Eurocentric sport. And I think that's a tricky avenue to go down. But that doesn't mean that the sport can't and shouldn't be more responsible when it comes to the impact on the environment. But when he's talking about the whole industry flying from Europe to Australia, I'd say there's you know more um, questionable um uh, and and bigger impacts uh, in the cycling industry of flying, you know, products from one side of the world to the other, having things made on one side of the world and sold in another. You know, whether it be trade shows or other races, you know, that the, the impact of activity is significant. And so, really, what you come down to then is just picking on a high-profile event organised by the world governing body and making an example of that. And I'm not necessarily sure that that's the smartest uh, approach to uh, what is going to become 
and is already becoming a, a problem that needs to be tackled in some way. I mean, what's the difference between fly, everyone flying to Australia for the world or everyone flying to Argentina for the Vuelta a San Juan? I mean, there isn't any difference, really. It's the same impact um, just for a lower profile event. And so I think there are things that cycling could do, um, you know, perhaps have sort of some kind of carbon tax or some kind of uh, air miles limit on what and who can be flown around the world i mean that would be the progressive and difficult to enforce but possibly more um, sustainable approach to gradually uh, reduce um, the, the impact and change the way the sport operates and so you you would have an impact on which races certain teams did and which riders took part in certain races you wouldn't perhaps be able to just fly somebody out at a, on a whim to fill a spot in the roster um, but then again you know if, if flights are going to places already uh, is it adding to the problem or is it is it just taking a seat on an aeroplane and so there's so many complex um, factors to this that I literally had never really considered until I started talking to climate scientists um, uh, over a year ago now and realized just how much there is to to bite off and try to absorb when it comes to discussing the sports impact on the environment but as you say Rich the environment's impact on the sport which I suspect will become a more pressing issue in the next few years and that might be the thing that changes people's behavior and makes people reflect on uh, whether some of the behavior is responsible whether you can persuade a, a capitalist activity like professional cycling to um, take preemptive measures beyond um, you know the the, the they're not insignificant but but fairly pr friendly measures that are going on at the moment both from teams and race organizers i'm not sure at the moment i don't think we've yet reached a point where it's becoming uh, where it's become on the radar of the general public quite enough but that point will come i mean it's unavoidable now if you talk to and uh, read the people who really know about this stuff i mean i think if professional cycling in the uci really wanted to be sort of pioneers in this respect we've, we've spoken a lot over the years about the problems they have in well the disorganization of the calendar and they the, they could use climate change almost as their sort of gestalt almost as the you know that is what sets the agenda and you know we go to a certain part of the world in a certain period of the of the year and then you know we spend a month there the whole sort of circus spends a month there and then it moves somewhere else um because as you say, Lionel, there are a lot of unnecessary journeys or journeys, you know, to Italy and then the same group of people, then they might go to the United States and then they're back in Italy uh, a week or so later. Um, you know, there was talk of the, the, the a sort of Australian swing being created next year at the World Championships with the Cadell Ocean Race and um, the, the, was it the Herald Sun Tour as well. So a number of Australian races were going to be combined. So that, that would have helped. I mean, there are some race organisers who are doing better than others, I think. And the Vuelta was quite impressive this year in um in that they were they had um taken a number of measures the, they'd done away with plastic bottles they they cited a figure of something like 200,000 plastic bottles i thought it was more than that actually but i looked it up today 200,000 plastic bottles were just under that were, that were being saved um electric cars in the race caravan um but i mean i suppose if there's any consolation, none of this is quite as bad as Manchester United flying to Leicester for a match a few weeks ago. Um, 10 minutes on a plane, 160 kilometres. Um, 
So we, we don't see we don't see that in cycling, fortunately. We don't. But um, I think you make a really good point about the World Championships, uh, Lionel. Very easy to um, to pick on that on that one event. And you also uh, talked about you know fresh cycling being a, a a capitalist endeavor, which it is. And what's quite interesting at the moment in cycling is that quite a lot of events are springing up and defining themselves almost as uh being uh opposed to the way that professional cycling is is run now and 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 being more um true to cycling's roots and origins um and it'll be interesting to see how that that counterculture develops over the years because i think a lot of people will be sympathetic to that because especially when they go to the tour and they just see the the you can see the footprint if you like, because the publicity caravan swings through hundreds of vehicles, distributing all kinds of tat, uh, disposable tat generally, and then the, the 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 thousands of vehicles that accompany the tour every day. Um, I mean, the, the tat, the tat is not even single use tat; it's zero use tat because mm. it's completely, yeah, completely but, useless. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when I started going. When I started going to the the tour and and concerns about the climate weren't really on my radar or many people's radar, it that was a, that was a spectacular part of the tour. That was the thing that was sort of breathtaking about it and spe- and, and 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 awesome. Now, it 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 leaves a different taste in the mouth. I would say you know you, you can sense how people's attitudes are changing and that something that used to be quite awe-inspiring could now be quite shocking in a way. Um, and when you stand roadside and you you see what a bike race should be, a, a, a you know, a, a very kind of environmentally friendly endeavour. Um, and we're, we're part of that too, of course. We travel around France in, in a car, so we're not, we're not separate to it. Um, but I wonder if over time, and it could happen quite quickly, that and we're seeing it already actually in some places in France not wanting the tour because that's the impression that it leaves that it's this huge kind of polluting circus really so yeah I mean it's it, it's definitely a very a very important and pertinent question and attitudes to the tour and to the sight of all these vehicles could change quite quite quickly as as people's attitudes change. I mean, you know, I think there will come a point where some radical and quite brave decisions have to be taken, not because people, you know, want to, but because we'll have to get to a point where they will um, need to be taken. Whether that's, you know, I'm thinking, we've talked a lot about the, the, the calendar being illogical and having grown organically and, you know, weird things have kind of happened to the calendar just because of the way things have have gone you know races folding races popping up no real kind of thought behind them and I've we've talked lots of times about having a more, more coherent um geographical swings as, as you said there Daniel but you know maybe we will get to the point where they'll say well um it's the cobbled classics on even numbered years and the hilly classics on odd numbered years and we've reduced the number of events because I think from an outside and objective point of view looking at all sports there is just so much going on everything is expanding and and this kind of perpetual growth and the desire for more and more and more it does reach a saturation point Um, I mean I follow football and everything's getting bigger the World Cup's 
um, got more teams in it, lasts longer. Uh, they want to have it every two years. The Champions League's getting bigger. They want to have a European Super League. That's before you even talk about the American professional sports where teams are flying in private jets, crisscrossing the states, back and forth, day in, day out. I mean, you know, I'm not, again, getting close to kind of what about you and saying, well, all cycling isn't as bad. But I think there will come a point where somebody will have to take a lead. I don't think cycling is necessarily the biggest and most powerful and richest sport in order to be able to afford to take a lead and, and uh, start saying to its events, well, maybe we don't need the welter every year. I mean, I can already see but, but people flinching I, I, at the idea you know, of that uh, not happening. But, but just just the convoy on a race and the, the, the buses, you know, and the, the 200 euros of fuel they go, they burn through every day, each bus. And it, it all, you know, the, the, every, every, you know, every team has two cars in front of the race and two cars in, uh, behind the race. I, you know, you, you, instead of helicopters, you have drones. Instead of, a t you know, two team cars per team, you have neutral service for everybody. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward vehicles. to uh, I'm looking forward to Pogacar getting down from the summit of a mountain, just perched on a little drone, back to his hotel. <laughs> hold instead on, hold of, on tight instead today. Of team, instead of team buses, <laughs> instead of team buses, give them tents. <laughs> well, it would help. It would help if you know if teams were sort of they had a, a geographical well they had a base and every every one of the riders lived close to that base and then they could you know they could travel to races together you know everyone pile into the minibus and meet outside mark maddio's house at eight o'clock and we'll go um, but in all seriousness you know a team like francis de Gio, they do a lot of racing in or group Amar, they, they have a, do a lot of racing in france you know they could have a commercial deal with the T, with tgv with um sncf and they could you know if they were all in the same location they could all travel by train to a a large proportion of of their races but cycling's just not been organized like that no you make a good point there richard there are things that can be done and i think you know the the the, the challenge is so vast and so almost unimaginable that it is going to take some radical um changes to some of those things you mentioned reducing the size of the convoy maybe scrapping the publicity caravan thinking more um creatively about how to have the same impact without having the same impact and I think as, you know, we've seen it already, um, I think it was Ren, wasn't it, and Leon, both a bit of opposition to the tour coming for environmental reasons. As as more green uh, politicians become local leaders, mayors or local politicians, we'll see more opposition to the tour coming in its current form uh, and other big races. The tour is the most, the most obvious one. And you know, if you're a green uh, mayor of a of a city, th there's good publicity too in in refusing the tour, in and in highlighting the 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 environmental footprint of the tour. Just just to put in another question here, and it's a completely different question. This one comes from Ben Willis, but Ben is an Australian. You know, we we have a lot of listeners in Australia, and they obviously are are starved of professional bike racing. Really, they they normally have the tour done under, but it's been cancelled the last couple of years and there's huge excitement there understandably about the world championships uh coming next year um ben asks whether we think all the big stars will go uh, because the distance might uh, prove too great for some of them um we already heard in the podcast a couple weeks ago tom pidcock suggesting that he might not go although i think the course is hillier and more challenging than he thought it would be 
Do we think the timing is right in September to attract the best riders? And will we see the cycling podcast team at the World Championships in Australia? Asks Ben. I think it depends on the state of play in the pandemic, doesn't it? That's the main factor. For you personally, Daniel, or for the top riders? Well, I think for for all all of, all of the above, um, I think if there's any risk, any question, any suggestion that people could get caught out or trapped in the same way that some of the Australian Open tennis players were, um, then we could see a pretty watered down field, or you know, even the threat of, of kind of cancellation, postponement, or moving the worlds. I mean, we had the same question when it was in Australia in 2010, and there was a you know a very good, strong field of all the uh, not many absentees that I can think of off the top of my head, other than the the types of rider that the course didn't suit, because that was very much a a sort of sprinters world championships, wasn't it? I mean, I think it's important that Australia, with the um, the the history and heritage that it has in road cycling, holds the road world championships. Um, and I've never been south of the equator, so I would love to go one day. And uh, I mean, it depends on a lot of factors, doesn't it, Richard? But um, we'll have to discuss that at our probably, first. Probably depends big... on probably depends on about factor seventy five of you if you go to Australia, Lionel. At least fifty, anyway. <laughs> just I'll just wear a very wide brimmed hat to sort of uh, cast in it as yeah. I go across myself. With, with, <coughs> with corks hanging from it, oh, Lionel. Come off it. It, not like oh dear. <laughs> I suppose as a Scotsman, you, got, you, you, know, can, you can make that sort of Going joke. and alienating the, the local people. <laughs> um, but uh, I t- I, I'd love to go, but I, I must admit that the length of the flight puts me off. I, I just I, I just don't like flying. I don't like flying at all, but I don't like flying for that length of time. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I'll do anything I can to avoid it. Mm. But I would like to be there, so that does create a bit of a problem. Final question. Hi guys, Lauren from Watford. Thank you for all the work you're doing in the year. Uh, you are really spotting us. My question is about Filippo Ganna. Uh, Ganna is an incredible and unique talent, uh, so much that some of his competitors have decided to move their focus away from town trial. Um, Victor Campenarts and more recently Alex Dowsett. I was wondering if such a, an incredible dominance is ultimately going to annihilating interest in time trials. And on the side of that, I mean, we all think Ghana has got in him to win at least a few Paiobe. And my question is, how soon do you think he will actually make the jump and focus on the classics uh, such as Paiobe uh, instead? Thank you very much. Cheers, bye. Well, nice to hear from Laurent. I understand uh, Laurent, one of our very good friends of the podcast, been a bit poorly with COVID and uh, hope you're well on the way to recovery now, Laurent. Nice to hear from you. Filippo Ganna, uh, I mean, he's built for the classics, isn't he? Surely made for the classics. Um, Milan San Remo, perhaps the most obvious, but uh, some of the other ones too. Daniel, Tour Flanders, Paris-Roubaix. Yeah, I mean, Paris-Roubaix has been very much in his sights. He won the under-23 Paris-Roubaix, but um, only one rider in history has ever won under 23 Paris-Roubaix and then gone on to win the grown-up version. Do you know who it is? He's mentioned earlier in this pod- podcast, actually, uh, Mark Maddio. So it's not a particularly good guide. And I think there's a bit of scepticism, even in the team, about how suited he is to the classics. He had a go a couple of years ago and it didn't, um, it didn't 
but it, it, it really wasn't successful. Um, there were a lot of sort of DNFs and didn't have a very good time. But he's talked, well, he's talked about the classics and targeting the classics. But when he does that, he mainly refers to Milan San Remo, which I think is a race, as I said last year, is a race that he can definitely win and may well at some point fairly soon. Well, um, what he was going to win it this year, wasn't well, he, Daniel? Go. There you go. And, and as far as... Uh, so, according to our preview episode. There you go. Um, a bit like Florian Seneschal and Paris-Roubaix, which is also going to happen at some point. Um, the other the other part of the he question... Might, he might not even be the first Florian to win it. <laughs> um, the, the other part of the question, will Ghana's dominance kill interesting TTs? I actually think it's a bit of a golden age for... Um, time trialists we're entering um or if we've not already entered it um he's been beaten on a number of occasions Ghana by people like Roglic I think Stefan Kung is getting better every year you've got guys like even guys like Afini who we haven't really seen um win big time trials yet but I think he's going to be a big player in that particular arena Wout van Aert um Rowan Dennis is still capable of doing good time trials I think um I think it's going to be quite exciting much more so than it was when everything was sort of divided up carved up by Tony Martin and Fabian Cancellara when it often was a sort of two horse race um or the the prestigious time trials anyway you mentioned Cancellara though and I guess he's a great example of a rider who combined Time, being one of the best, if not the best, time trialist of his generation, with being a preeminent classics rider. Um, but it's, it seems that even since Cancellara retired, it's become more specialised. Time trial has become more specialised. You know, Victor Camparts has talked about this that um, it was becoming too specialised for him. So, ironically, I suppose he's become a classics rider. Um, or maybe that's not irony. Maybe that just illustrates the point. Um, but I wonder if Ghana could remain as good a time trial as he, as he is while also trying to, you know, win a race like Pirate Bay. I just don't, I just don't know. And in his team, Team Ineos, um, they don't have a great, they, they have a terrible track record at, at you know, with, with the, the cobbled classics. Um, they, they've simply never managed to do anything in them really at all. So, it would be quite a turn up for the books if they managed to turn him into a Pirate Bay winner. Well, chaps, sorry, Lionel. Well, no, I was going to say, I mean, if this was a press conference and we had a press officer, they'd have been doing the wind it up hand signal um, for, you know. Last 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) The last four to five minutes. Yes. 45 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let's leave it. We've we've had um we've had Jonathan Vauters on on Mark Padun's signature for EF in, at the start of the episode, but we've we've got through as many of your questions as as we could. We did have a lot of questions. We haven't got through them all. We do apologise for that. Um, we tried to keep uh keep it true to the the Anus Galacticus theme of looking back on the year and talking about some of these these great uh, champions that we've got at, at the moment. Um. Our, our focus wavered a little bit at times perhaps but uh, we will be returning to that focus next week with our alternative awards which will have a snappy title by next week we're going to be hearing from lots of friends of the podcast in that episode a couple of writers as well and uh want some of our some of our fellow presenters but we'll be running through some alternative awards to wrap up the season and then we'll have the christmas selection box over christmas between christmas and new year 
a different episode every day for friends of the podcast. We've just released our 2020 Tour de France diaries. Myself, Lionel and Francois um, are all in, in that telling in the sort of story behind the story of the 2020 tour. Next week, our 2021 Tour de France Diaries will be out for friends of the podcast. That's me, Francois Lionel, and Kate Wagner. And next week, we'll have our 2021 Tour de France Diaries will be released. That's me, Lionel, Francois, and Kate. So that's coming up for friends of the podcast next week as well. But that's all uh, for this week. I might go and treat myself to a a nice glass of wine. um, Sort of uh, just lamenting the fact that i couldn't make last night's obviously unforgettable event um uh, but you know in that i i, I have i I'm, I'm i can relate to 99.999 percent of the podcast listeners so anyway i look forward to listening to what you talked about i know you're going to be uploading that file soon and it will be released as part of our selection box <laughs> so i'm looking forward to that anyway Maybe. Thank you very much, Lionel. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Daniel. Thanks, chaps. This is a very encouraging first episode, Tom. <laughs> very uh, it's happy, isn't it? It's uplifting. For Welcome me. to season two. <laughs> Listen to how shit my summer's been. Big news. The Garrett Thomas Cycling Club is back for season two with me, Garrett Thomas. And me, Tom Fordyce. We've got more big name guests like Bradley Wiggins. You know, you've got to be a real ruthless as a cyclist, and I realise that, you know. <laughs> you have to be. You become a horrible person at times. And Tade Pogaccia. You possibly seem even more relaxed than G. I don't know if I'm more relaxed than him. Now I'm pretty nervous for this podcast. And G's Welsh mates too, like George North. How was that for an intro? Do you like it? That's the worst introduction. That is the worst. Half of that was absolute rubbish. Can we start again? This is not the right <laughs> intro for me, I don't feel like. And unfortunately, more crashes. Oh, wait, hang on. We're not talking about that word on this pod. No, we're not. Just search for the Garrick Thomas Cycling Club. Come and join us. Everyone's welcome. <laughs>